your son, his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for the third week of a 43-week series, um, and I did say 43, not um, and so it, it's, it's, we've got, we got a ways to go. So you, uh, if you've missed out, you haven't missed all of it yet. So there's still, you know, I, I don't know, 20 chapters to go. Um, 22, actually, but that's who's keeping track besides me. Um, maybe you are. But I've been thinking about as a culture how we are enamored with celebrity and reality. And here's what I mean. We, we are, um, it's easy to see the celebrity portion. I mean, you can turn on the television, you can walk by newsstands, you can see. We, we love to know what's going on in the life of celebrities. We want to know what's going on. And you say, well, maybe not you, but, but one of the largest groups that watches the show Dancing with the Stars is, is an older demographic. I'm just going to point that out. I'm not saying that you fall into that category. Um, is that, that celebrity is usually the beautiful people by those who are the funniest people, those who are the best actors and actresses, or possibly even the best athletes. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll give a little caveat here, um, a side note, that if you've been watching lots of college basketball, I think you're excused from the idea of being enamored with celebrity. You just care about student athletes. Um, you just care about their well-being. We're going to give you that one a pass right now during this season. But but in fact, the idea of celebrity, in fact, celebrity has gone so far that this idea of reality has turned into reality stars. You can be, I don't know how this works, how, how reality star becomes a celebrity. If you live in reality, you're not a celebrity. I, I don't know exactly, but I know that there's something to be said for it because most of the shows on television today deal with this idea of reality television. But don't we all live in reality? Isn't what we all live in reality in some way? In fact, I, I, the people I worry about the most are people who think they live in some alternative reality. Um, or maybe it's when people don't take honest looks at themselves and the reality around them. They, they live in their own alternative reality. I think we do this in our own families at times. We, we don't take honest looks at either what we have done or what we're doing or, or, or those kinds of things. But, but in fact, you know, I, I have to tell a family story. My brother, um, my middle brother, we, we had a surprise birthday party for my dad on Friday, and so I saw my brothers and sister. And, and my middle brother, though, who, who's the one who got married this last summer, and so he is finally, he's married now, and so I can pick on him even more about this kind of story. But when we were kids, he, he, um, he was always infatuated with beautiful women. It's shocking, I know, that a, a boy between the ages of 6 and 96 would find women beautiful. I know, it's shocking. But, but my brother decided that, that they should be his girlfriend, and so he, he would see a someone either in a magazine or on television, and, and, and we begin to ask him questions. So is that one of your girlfriends? And he'd go, yes, of course. So at one point, he had over several hundred girlfriends. He kept track at one point. I don't know how many it actually was. And, and so we used to tease him, and it would be this kind of ongoing conversation. And finally, we began asking him, you know, we'd say, how many girlfriends do you have now? And he would tell you, and I was like 10, so it wasn't like I was old. But I would then ask the question, how many of them know they're your girlfriend? How many of you know you're alive? And you go, a couple, you know, like two, three, maybe, knew he existed. And so we'd laugh because this was my brother. He lived in his own alternative universe, his own reality that he had created, and it was a running joke in our family. I think sometimes we do the same thing. Well, it's not as funny. We've made ourselves the center of our own universe.
In fact, we want ourselves to live in a current reality where, where we're present in every way. It was um, officiated by 36 funerals since I've been here on Tuesday. And one of the things that one of the people, family members, talked to me about was the fact that, that our mom was always present. She wasn't just there, but she was present. And so, so they would have said their reality was that their mom was present in their lives. It's not a bad thing. But sometimes we do wonder, is there more to life than this reality we see around us? Is there more than this reality television? Is there more than us being the center of our own universe? And in fact, we begin to, to wonder what this might look like. And then, and then we begin to ask these kind of questions. Well, look at the beauty in the world. What does that mean? Look at those moments at family barbecues and family gatherings and see what's going on and see whether it really matters. Or maybe the words from the Dave Matthews song with these words, and they're actually echoed by Paul who wrote them first, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's not anything more, then we might as well live in that way. But what if there is more? What if there's something more to live for? What if, what if this idea of celebrity and reality, what if these questions are not new? What if, what if in fact, they're very, very old? What if, in fact, they're so old that Jesus spoke into these kind of things? What if we've been asking these same kind of questions really since the beginning of time? So Luke, the Greek doctor who wrote down lots of stuff about Jesus, he really was searching for life worth living. And he found it when he came to know Jesus. And so he writes us these words from Luke chapter 20, and I'll invite you to stand as we read from Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 27. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 27, says this. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angel of God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. And Jesus said to them, How is it that they say that Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show, make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. The word of the Lord. Amen. 
You may be seated. Now we've read the past couple weeks how, how the Sadducees, those who gathered in the temple courts, had been trying to trap Jesus for days. They've been attempting to trap him. They've been attempting to try to try to coerce him. They've been attempting to try to catch him in something he said so they could have him arrested and, and executed. And once again, we see Luke telling us another story that articulates that exact same thing. See, the Sadducees were the ruling people of the temple. They made up, um, they were teachers of the law, the chief priests, the aristocracy of their day. They were, they were few in number, but they were wealthy. In fact, I should probably clarify between Pharisee and Sadducee, because we use them often interchangeably in the life of the church. We, we sometimes talk about them in scriptures in ways as if they are the same, but they are actually a little bit different. So when we talk about a, a Pharisee, a Pharisee was someone who is a fanatically religious they embraced all of what we call the Old Testament. They embraced not only just those things, but other rules that were added by men. I mean, they, they followed rules to the T. They were waiting impatiently for God to send his Messiah. And their expectation was that he would come and he would overthrow Rome and he would raise Israel up again to be this great nation, this military might, this kingdom that would conquer the world. That's what they were expecting. The Sadducees, on the other hand, as I said, were few in number. They were made up of, of the wealthy, some of the chief priests, teachers of the law. In fact, they, um, they only valued the first five books of the Old Testament that they call the Law of Moses. And in fact, they actually kind of hoped the Messiah didn't come. Their hope was that there was no Messiah because it would screw up the system that existed for them. They were in power. They were co-conspirators with Rome. They had found ways. They bought into the idea, if you can't beat them, join them. That's what they did. But they controlled the temple, and so they also were, were connected to Rome in that way. So they were, they were people who, who didn't believe in life after death. In fact, it's why one of the jokes, and it's not a very good joke. It's really kind of a bad joke. It's the kind of joke I would tell, because I'm a really bad joke teller. But, but it was often said, they were, they were of them, they were sad, you see, because they were Sadducees, sad you see, because they didn't believe in life after death. I told you, it's a bad joke. It's as good as it gets for me, but it's bad. But you can remember it now. They were sad you see, because they didn't believe in life after death. Right? You, now you're not going to forget that, because they were sad you see. I'm going to stop now, because it's only going to get worse. But they, they didn't believe in this life after death, and so they come to Jesus with this question, and they say, Jesus... You're this great teacher, this great rabbi, this one who's supposed to speak all kinds of truth. I mean, what do you do about this? If you believe there's life after death, what about this story? Now, most scholars believe this was kind of a stock story. It was like the trump card you threw out that won every time people got in an argument. Like, oh, good luck with this one. Kind of like when someone says, well, um, do, do, you, do you believe in God? Show him to me. You know, I'm like, kind of like, oh, conversation's over now. We, I've just thrown out the conversation that stops all conversations. I am that much smarter than you. Good luck. It's kind of what happens here. And they tell him this story, and they say, so Jesus, let's, let's suppose there's this family of brothers, seven brothers. One marries this woman, and he dies. 
Not totally uncommon in his day. In fact, so then the law says the next brother in line is to marry her to give an heir so that the, the family farm or family property doesn't leave the family. Because if, if the original brother doesn't have an heir, then his son has no claim, then his wife is widowed and left alone, and she has no value, no property, because women were not valued in that day. And so, so what happens is that Jesus says, well, what's the rest of the story? And so they go on to tell, well, that, that brother dies, and all the way through till all the brothers are dead, and there were no heirs. So no kids were born. And then they ask the question where they think they've got them. So, at the resurrection, whose wife is she? She had seven husbands, right? Whose wife is she now? And Jesus doesn't really dismiss them. He doesn't push them away. He knows in their mind, they're saying, of course there's there's no resurrection. Can you imagine how weird it would be for seven husbands to have one wife? That's just messed up. But Jesus looks at them and he says, well, what if what if there is no marriage at the resurrection? What if one of the main reasons that you're talking about marriage, because the reason they're talking about marriage is about procreation, because you need an heir. It's about creating life, so about procreating. He says, well, what if, what if there's no need for procreation? So if that's the case, there's really no need for marriage. So if that's the case, then this conversation is irrelevant. And they realized he's caught him. And see, they, what they didn't really want to talk about, he not only meant literal life after death, this idea that the body would be resurrected, it would be this newness in God. He also meant that it would be the time and the place in which God redeems all that is broken, all that is wrong in the world, and he makes all the wrongs of the world right. When everything that has been broken, and in the world in this room, it's represented in our families. It's probably represented in our own past. Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what happens at the resurrection. People who know the Lord be the children of God. And then he tells them a story. He says, you remember the account of Moses? Remember the story of the burning the bush and the bush, can, bush speaks to him? I mean, it's God speaking, but you know the story. You're right. You know the story. You guys know the story. He says, I am the God of Abraham. God of Isaac and God of Jacob. So in other words, he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. See, what Jesus did so well is he used their language, their stories, their understanding. He was on their turf. I can't help but think for us today that that will be so much more helpful for us if we relearn what it was like to have conversation on someone else's turf and spoke their language. I think if we're not careful in the church, we begin to use language that no one gets outside the church. And then we can't figure out why they don't want to be a part. 
Because there's a special meaning that we know. We know the special meaning. When we talk about resurrection, we know that God's saying that he's going to redeem the body and the soul, and it's all going to be re- reborn. And we all hope like we're like our 21-year-old self. We don't necessarily want to be our broken-down 70-year-old self. We want to be our 21-year-old self in great shape, right? I mean, like, we, or pick whatever age you want. I don't care. Maybe 45 was your best age. I don't know. But, but we want to be that best self at the resurrection. We don't know what's going to happen there. But, but the idea is this. We believe God is going to redeem body and soul. And if that's true, he does it through the person of Jesus. And so we know what that word means, but to someone outside the church, that's foreign language. In fact, because I knew who my audience was going to be this morning, I used that language intentionally, but I, I, I'll have to change it at 11. There's a good chunk of those people who don't have the church history, many of you do. So there's a language even we use even in our own church, in our own services, sometimes shifts because of the understanding that we have from different backgrounds. There's one other really, really, really important thing that happens here in this story. Jesus affirms the value of women. See, one of the things that Jesus is pointing out is that when everything is made right, it, women don't need a man to give them value. I know, we, we, we all know that, and many of you will let me know that later. That's true. I get that. Uh, my wife will tell you the same thing. You know, I, uh, it's true. But in a culture in which you had to have a man to have value, you literally were worthless without a husband in that day. What Jesus says in this is part of the resurrection, part of the redemption of God is that all will be made right, and that's a wrong that will be made right. That's why Paul, who gave his life, to saying women didn't have value before he came to know Jesus. Post that, gave his life to saying everyone had value, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. And then one of the teachers of the law responds as well, oh, good words, Jesus. Nice job. And then, and then the story continues, and Jesus begins to teach then, which is never good. If you've asked a really hard question, the guy begins teaching as you walk away, never a fun time to be near. And so Jesus says, well, the son of David stuff. I've, we've all heard this, right? You've heard this. You've heard people talk about me this way. And then he, what he says is, well, how can the guy who's to be the son of David also be called Lord? Confusing, isn't it? But what he's insinuating, they would not have missed. It's not that hard to do if the one he's saying Lord is also the one who is God. And, and if I happen to be the son of God, then I was before and after David. And they would have heard that and the implication of that. He never went out and said what he was, but he implied it in such a way that it would have messed with them. In fact, I love the words of William Barclay when he talks about this text. He said he was telling men they must not revise their ideas of what son of David meant. They must abandon these fantastic dreams of world power and visualize Messiah as Lord of the hearts and lives of men. He was implicitly blaming them for having too little an idea of God. And this line I underline, even though it's not my words, I think it's really, really good. It is always man's, meaning people, it's always man's tendency to make God in his own image and thereby to miss his full majesty. It's God in his own image and thereby his majesty. In fact, Jesus always seems to bring this stuff back to practical application. So then he, he says, well, what about those who walk around in robes? Those teachers of the law, those who walk around, he said, ugh, those guys. 
Now, the truth is, Jesus had a great admiration for teachers of the law. But what he's talking about is some of the teachers of the law, not all of them, some, have begun to take the very words of the Scriptures and twist them and add to them in such ways that the people would follow them. And so what had begun happening was, wasn't that the teachers of the law were, should have been taken care of in the culture in which they lived. That was, that was appropriate. But what had begun to happen was that teachers of the law would say, you should take care of me before you take care of your own mother and father. If your dad, you better come help me first. Because that's, that's scriptural. It wasn't, but most of the people couldn't read, so they couldn't argue with them about it. I mean, it was, this, was, this was the reality of what was going on, and it, really that wasn't the issue whether they could read or not read. The issue was the interpretation of Scripture, and so teachers of the law had begun to twist that. And Jesus was so angry about that because he said, I, I came to serve, not to be served. Frankly, there's no better teacher than me. See, I think there's some application for us here today. We live in a world that says the mark of maturity is to say this, um, I've arrived, serve me, take care of me. In many ways, that's what retirement means for us. We, we look forward to retirement because then I don't have to do what you tell me to do anymore, you do what I want. That's why we like retirement. The problem is, biblically, that model doesn't exist. That's called spiritual immaturity. See, the Bible takes what we think of as maturity and it flips it on its head and says, the more spiritually mature will be the one who says, I want to serve you. I want to do what is best for you, not what's best for me. So as we grow in maturity and knowing Jesus, we say, how can I serve? What's best for those immature in Christ? In fact, as we become even more spiritually mature, we say, what's best for those who don't yet know Jesus? We begin to live our lives and ask questions that lead us into that kind of place. And so what do these texts say to us today? See, the Sadducees would have rather wrestled with hypothetical scenarios than really acknowledge what it looks like to invest and to love people who didn't know God. They were enamored with trying to become celebrities to create their own reality. See, we don't have the power they had. They were, they were politically connected. I mean, maybe you're more politically connected than I know, but I don't think any of us have that kind of power. But often we lose ourselves in celebrity or reality in some kind of way because it takes us out of real life. Because real life can be hard. Because both Christians and non-Christians alike, we like simple answers. but it's sometimes just not that simple. See, it takes faith and reason to wrestle. It can't be done just haphazardly. And to live into God's reality, to say, well, we, we ask this question of what kind of reality we live in. Well, what if there really is an alternative reality, but it's called kingdom reality? It's living as if Christ is already present and his kingdom is here and now. What if we lived into that kind of story? What if that was what defined us? In fact, so this becomes for us the question, what, can we really believe that God loves us? Can we really believe that the fullness of God is seen in a cross? Can we really believe that the mark of maturity isn't 
people serving us, but it's us serving them and choosing their preferences over our own? Can we really believe that reality is true? Because truly, that's the reality Jesus came for. It's the reality Jesus taught. In fact, I want to read um, a line from Pope Yancey's book, um, Vanishing Grace. The church is, above all, a place to receive grace. It brings forgiven people together with the aim of equipping us to dispense grace to others. On his trip to South America, Henry Nouwen learned the paradoxical truth that, quote, we minister above all with our weakness, end quote. Too often, he observed, Christians operate out of the desires to be in control, to tell others what to do and how to think. But Jesus called us to be servants, and servants empty themselves of privilege and any sense of superiority. Consistently, I have found the uncommitted respond best to someone who leads from weakness rather than one who appears to have it all together. I saw this truth lived out most profoundly in my friend, Brennan Manning, who died as I was writing this book. Brennan piped a one-note tune, the melody of grace, and his own life embodied the theme. Our backgrounds could hardly have been more dissimilar. Southern fundamentalist versus Northeastern Catholic. And yet by different routes, we both stumbled upon an artesian well of grace and gulped it ever after. One autumn afternoon, Brent and I hiked on a carpet of golden aspen leaves along a mountain stream, and I heard the details of his life, his loveless childhood, his marathon search for God, his marriage and divorce, his lies and cover-ups, his continuing struggles with alcoholism. His was a life of failure punctuated by grace. Brennan Manning began speaking mostly to evangelical Protestant audiences after his status as a divorced, inactive priest made him unwelcome in many Catholic gatherings. A small, trim man with a head of snow-white hair, he'll usually start his talk slowly until something akin to possession, until something akin to possession would take over. And with a strong voice, and a poetic rhythm of a rap artist who would launch into a riff about the grace of God such as this one. Why is Brennan Manning lovable in the eyes of God? Because on February 8th of 1956, in a shattering, life-changing experience, I committed my life to Jesus. Does God love me because ever since I was ordained a priest in 1963, I roamed the country and lately all over the world proclaiming the good news of the gospel of grace? Does God love me because I tithe to the poor? Does he love me because back in New Orleans I work on skid row with alcoholics, addicts, and those who suffer with AIDS? Does God love me because I spend two hours every day in prayer? If I believe that stuff, I'm a Pharisee. And I feel I'm entitled to be comfortably close to God because of my good works. The gospel of grace says, Brennan, you're lovable for one reason only, because God loves you. Period. Rising in eloquence, he held audiences spellbound. One university chaplain told me that no speaker had ever had more impact on his fickle students than his aging, alcoholic, failed priest from New Jersey. Despite all his faults, or perhaps because of them, in his listeners he summoned up thirst along with the stunning wild revelation that they too were loved by God. Using the power of his own story towards semi-transformation, Brennan invited fellow pilgrims to join him on the venture.
one of the things I think we quickly forget. I quickly forget. It is the grace of God that comes to us and says, you're mine. Not because of anything I have done, not because of anything you have done, but God comes to us and says, it's because of everything I have done. It's because of who I am. And then he says this, if you really know me, then you better start living in such a way that other people come to know me as well. And if you're not, then maybe you never really met me to begin with. But I want you to know me. See, I really think there's something in us that longs for something more. There's something in us that wonders, is this really all it is? Is this really the true reality of our lives? Is this it? Or is there more? I think there's something in our souls that longs to know, to connect with the divine. I think there's something in us that desires desperately to be in relationship with other people. And I think when we are most fulfilled, when I'm most fulfilled, is when I'm trying to live in a way that other people who don't yet know Jesus come to know him some through the love that comes from me. And I know ultimately that love doesn't really come from me because I'm probably not that loving. But it comes from God. See, I, I don't... Um, I love you all. Most days, I say most, because if you catch me on the wrong day, Monday through Friday, there's probably one day where I'd say I'd rather go work at Walmart and be a greeter. But, um, but most days, there's nothing else I'd rather do. Most days, that's true. It's a privilege and honor to, to, to be your pastor. But one of the roles I play in that is to push you. Because if you're not growing spiritually, then you're not growing. And in terms of our spirituality, if we're not growing, we're actually going the other way. We're declining. So we are, we're in relationship with God either we're in deeper ways or, or, or we're going the other way and you can't coast uphill. It doesn't work that way. I've tried it. You know, you just fall backwards. But the challenge for us as we try to figure out what this looks like is are we investing in people who don't know Jesus? Are we sharing with them the grace that Brandon Manning that so radically defined his life? And if you've never read any books by Brandon Manning, I would encourage you to go buy them. You can get them on Amazon for a penny. Three nine in shipping. So for $4, you can get a book. And they're good. He writes from a well of knowing the grace of God that radically transformed him because he was a wreck. But he's transformed by the grace of God. And the truth is, every one of us in here, myself included, we're a wreck if it isn't for the grace of God. So maybe for some of us, we need to start telling people our own stories about the way we've been a wreck. Maybe we need to acknowledge actually where we really are. Because if we're not willing to talk about the way God's grace has come to us, and we are Pharisees. And not the good Pharisees who tried to know God. We're the, good, we're the Pharisees who were trying to hide what was really going on inside. But see, I, I think that there's somehow through the grace of God, he comes to us and he says to us, if you come to know my grace, I'll bring you healing. If you come to know my grace, I'll bring you true freedom to where you're not enslaved to anything. As Brennan would tell you, through God's grace and through a community of faith, he was no longer addicted to alcohol. It was always a struggle. His entire life, it was a struggle. 
In fact, if you'll come to know God's grace, he'll come to us and he'll say to us, I'm yours. See, I just, I know this. My dream for you and my dream for me is that no matter how old we may get, we're still passionate about people coming to know Jesus. We will lay aside whatever it is that hinders them from doing that. Well, that's going to hinder it to those outside of the church, those who don't yet know Jesus, gone, done, no problem. But this is not about me anyway. See, I, I read stuff all the time, and the reason I read it isn't so I can say, well, hmm, how do you pastor a church of people who, how do you, well, if you don't know how to grow a church, I'll tell you, you give people what they want. Problem is, you can't do that. I don't know if you realize that. That's humanly impossible. Because everybody wants something different, and they all think they're right. I don't know how to do that. I don't want to pastor that church. If I knew how, I'd try it, but it probably wouldn't work. But I know this. I can, I'm going to try to pastor a church and give people what they need, which is to know God's grace and to follow after him and to live in such a way that others come to know him through our lives. And if we're not doing that, then we are probably not very faithful. And then we need God's grace and God's mercy. This morning, my invitation for you and I is this. Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to live in the true reality that God's kingdom isn't just some far-off reality, but it's here, it is present with us, here in these moments? Or are we going to say, well, that's fine. I hope that church down the road, I hope people are reaching Jesus there. Because it's not going to happen here. But I don't know about you, but I'm willing to give my life to seeing people come to know him. And I hope you'll join me in that. I know our church board and staff are wrestling with what does that look like in the 21st century church? Because it doesn't look like it did in the 20th century church. The world is dramatically changing. In fact, this next generation that is the, the, my generation, I guess I fall in the millennial generation. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, but the millennial generation is the most unchurched generation in American history. In fact, the generation come to find it is the first generation they'll call post-Christian. That's my kid's generation. So the way we have done it will not work in the future. So whatever we do, we do it because we want people to know Jesus. To know the grace that so radically defines the life, defined the life of Brennan Manning. I sure hope it defines my life because I'm a wreck without it. And I hope to find your life as well. Father, you help us this morning as we try to be defined by your reality that invites us not to seek celebrity, but to seek you. We so desperately want to be people who know you, who are defined by you, who, who come to know your love in such life-giving and life-changing ways that, that we know you in every aspect of who we are. And so we pray today, Father, that you would help us to be your people. May we go into this world and may we live in such a way that we are so defined by the grace of God, by your love. That the temptation of the Sadducees is to be defined by their own reality and their own selfish ambition would not be what defines us. So Father, we so desperately hope and pray and plead that we will receive your grace and that we will give your grace. So Father, the amazing thing we know in the story of Jesus is that in the end, um, Jesus comes back from the grave and he says to you, to all of us, Father, he says to us, I love you, and you are mine.
I hope you'll find this life that is in me that is abundant. So Father, help us to be people who have found this abundant life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with me this morning as we say a benediction today. As we prepare to leave this place today, may we leave knowing that there is no place that we go that the grace of God does not come to us. As we leave this day, may we live in such a way that the grace of God, His love, so radically defines our hearts that everyone we encounter cannot help but be changed because we too have recognized how desperately we need God. So may you go this day in God's grace and peace and love.